Well, in preparation for Hanukkah, guess what I'm going to talk on tonight? Hanukkah. The title of this message is Hanukkah and the End of Days. New Covenant reading is John chapter seven, uh, chapter ten, uh, verses seven through eighteen. There are two minor holy days in Judaism that are exceptional to the other minor holy days, and that is Purim and Hanukkah, and they reference specific events in our history. Yet both of these refer to the struggles that Israel has faced since Abraham was first called by God. Assimilation and murder are the two ways that Hasatan seeks to annihilate Israel. Hanukkah is a time when evil attempted to destroy us spiritually through assimilation. If we become like the other nations, we lose our distinctive, which is the very purpose of our purpose in creation, to be distinctive, to show forth God's glory. At Purim, evil wished to murder every Jew physically. When assimilation fails, the murders begin. We're either being tempted to assimilate or we're being attacked and murdered. Hanukkah is typical of Israel's continual struggle to return to purity. And as Peabody and Sherman, we are going to look at some rather improbable history tonight. During the intertestamental period, Israel was controlled by the Seleucid Empire under a man by the name of Antiochus IV. He controlled the Greek Syrian remnant of Alexander the Great's empire. After he died, that empire got split up. There were a number of different kings over various geographical locations. Antiochus gave himself the title Epiphany, which means God with us. We have found coins from that period of time. It had his image with the inscription Epiphany. God is with us. It means the same thing as Emmanuel in, in Hebrew. He was a rather capricious fellow, given to whimsical and sudden changes. And therefore, his contemporaries dubbed him, they created this pun. And instead of Epiphany, they called him Epimenes, which means the mad one. He's crazy. He was one of the Hashichutz Mishomem, mentioned by Daniel. It means abomination that makes desolate, what Christians refer to as the Antichrist. There have been a number of them throughout history. After occupying Israel, Antiochus defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and replacing the high priest of Israel with an assimilated Greek Jew. Circumcision was hence forbidden, and he went throughout the land 
destroying every Torah scroll that he could find. This clash of cultures enraged the Judean Jews in Israel, and there was a great deal of unrest. And this is the backdrop to the story of Hanukkah. On a day that began like any other, a minor priest was strolling down the street. He was of no particular note, and he is approached by some soldiers. They order him and some other Jews who were standing around to sacrifice a pig. When one of the Greek Jews in that group started to move forward to sacrifice that pig, Matityahu, in the spirit of Pinchas, kills him and anybody else, along with the soldiers who were involved in this sacrifice of the pig. That spark ignites the tinderbox that is Israel, and the rebellion is on. Matityahu's son, Yehuda, leads the fight after Matityahu dies. He is so fierce in battle, he is dubbed Hamakabi, which means the hammer. This translation is taken from the Hebrew word makaga. It is a, it's a, it's a, it's a form of force. Israel's self-defense, military self-defense, is called krav maga. It's derived from the same, same word. It's, it's power, force, fighting. Less widely spread is the understanding that Machabi is an acronym for Michamocha Be'elim Adonai from the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. Both understandings are likely accurate. Yehuda retakes Jerusalem, purifies the altar, and then rededicates the temple. Subsequently, Yehuda and all of his brothers, save Yonatan and Shimon, are killed in battle. Only two of the sons of Matit Yahu survive. After Yehuda HaMakabi dies, Yonatan negotiates a peace with Antiochus, and he is installed as the high priest. And thus begins, once again, the eternal cycle of holiness, defilement, shuva, a return to holiness, and then, of course, the holiness begins the cycle again. None of Matit Yehu's sons were qualified to be the high priest, even though Antiochus appoints him as such. He was a minor priest. Eventually, John Hyrcanus II becomes the high priest and king of Israel. This is an extremely important move in the nation of Israel. He is effectively declaring himself to be the Messiah. And everybody understood that, at least in Israel. Psalm uh, 110 declares, my people believe, Psalm 110, as Christians also believe, speaks of the Mashiach. And, and it declares that he will be after the order of Melchizedek. He swears an oath, will not repent. He is a, a descendant of, he's after the order of Melchizedek author of Hebrews deals with this as well. The reason Mashiach had to come as a descendant of Melchizedek rather than 
after the order of the Levitical priesthood is because under the Levitical priesthood, you could not be a king and a priest. To be a king, you had to be from the tribe of Yehuda. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was a different sort. He was the king of Shalom. He was the king of peace. And he was also described in Genesis as a priest of the Most High. So here he can be a king and a priest in one person under the Levitical system. That was not possible. When Herkanos declares himself to be the high priest and the king of Israel, the leadership of Israel is now utterly defiled politically and religiously. I believe John Herkanos and Antiochus were two of those Yeshua refers to in John chapter 10 verse 8 when speaking about false messiahs. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers and the sheep or the remnant of God's people did not believe them. These words were speaking, spoken at the Feast of Hanukkah. John chapter 10 verse 22 tells us Yeshua was at the temple at the Feast of Dedication, which is what the word Hanukkah means, the Feast of Dedication. The Pharisees, remembering what took place during the intertestamental period, demand of Yeshua in verse 24, they're tired of the subtleties, and they say, tell us plainly, if you are the Messiah, speak it, say, tell us. They were tired of the games. Yeshua then declares it boldly in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. They then pick up stones in order to kill him. They did not wish to repeat the sin of their fathers, some of whom who had accepted Antiochus as Emmanuel, God with us, and others who accepted Hyrcanus as the Mashiach. They didn't want to do the same thing. They didn't believe Yeshua to be the Mashiach. They didn't believe him to be God with us. And so when he proclaims it, they wish to execute him. Of course, there were many others in Israel who did believe Yeshua was who he said he was. John Hyrcanus as most men in power, was insatiable in his desire to rule. He conquers Idumea and forces them to convert to Judaism. That is a direct violation of Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 5. Israel is forbidden forever to take the land of the Idumeans, who were the descendants of Esau. Esau had his own land, and Israel was not, not to go into it. King Herod was an Idumean, and he eventually became the ruler of Israel under Rome. The rabbis of my people consider Herod to be our punishment for breaking Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 5, and conquering and forcing the Idumeans to convert to Judaism. 
Herod is one of the worst sociopaths in history. He was dubbed Herod the Butcher. The most dangerous place to be was in Herod's court as a part of Herod's family. He killed his entire family. He also murdered tens of thousands of babies, as we're told in the gospel. He's a complete sociopath. According to 2 Maccabees, after retaking Jerusalem and purging the temple from defilement, the Jews engage in a late celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And they wish to rededicate the altar after it had been defiled by the blood of a pig. Sukkot could not be celebrated at its proper time because they were in the midst of war. And so Jerusalem did not belong to Israel. We couldn't go there to the temple site and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The word Hanukkah is used in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 9, when King Shlomo dedicates the altar in the temple. It's called Hanukkah HaMizbeach, a dedication or a rededication of the altar. The Maccabees called this dedication Sukkot Bekeslev in 2 Maccabees. It's the Feast of Tabernacles in the month of Kislev, which is what we're in right now. Josephus refers to Hanukkah as he was a first century historian. He was a Jewish man hired by the Romans to write history. He, he has voluminous works. Uh, he wrote about the um, about the, the fight at Masada where uh, Israeli soldiers fought off the Romans and then eventually committed suicide so that they would not be taken as hostage. Josephus refers to Hanukkah as the Feast of Lights. And he is the one who tells us and relates the story of the great miracle that happened there. When they, when they finally gained control of the temple, it was in ruins. They purged it with fire, and they found one cruise of oil that still had the seal of the high priest on it so that it was undefiled. But this cruise of oil was only enough oil to last for one day in lighting the menorah. And a miracle of miracles, that one cruise of oil lasted eight days, and so we have the eight days of, of Hanukkah. Actually, Sukkot and the, f the ne very next holy day, which is Shminei Atzeret, the eth eighth day in Leviticus, that secondary celebration lasted eight days because Sukkot and Shminei Atzeret last the eight days. We also developed during that time a little game, and it's called the dreidel. A dreidel is like a spinning top, and it has four sides, and each side has a Hebrew letter, the nun, gimel, he, and shin. And it's an acronym that stands for Nezgadol Hayasham. A great miracle happened there. That is the way Jews outside in the diaspora speak of the miracle of Hanukkah. Obviously, Jews within the land, they have a pay instead of a shin. Nezgadol haya po. A great miracle happened 
here because they're in Israel. The soldiers of Antiochus would randomly invade homes to check if the Jews were studying the Torah. There were lookouts placed. They were, if, if the Jews were warned the soldiers were coming, they would hide the Torah scrolls, and they would pull out the dreidels and start playing the dreidel game, and it looked innocent when the soldiers came in. This conflict that is described in 2 Maccabees in this intertestamental period was as much a civil war as it was a revolt. Many Greek Jews fought on the side of Antiochus. They didn't like the Judean Jews. It's the same thing in this nation. When the colonists revolted, not all the colonists revolted. Some of the American colonists revolted. We had an entire segment of our population of no small number who were called Tories, and they were loyal to the King of England, and they fought with England against other colonists. Our revolution was as much a civil war as it was a revolution against the rule of King Henry. Yeshua grew up in the midst of this political and religious upheaval. The acrimony between the Greek and Judean Jews was fierce in the intertestamental period and persisted amongst the believers in the New Covenant. In Acts chapter 6, Greek Jews are complaining that they're not getting enough food from the Judean Jews. They go to the elders, Peter and them, who appoint shamashim, or deacons, servants, to tend to these matters. What do we have to do with this? Figure out who's going to hand out the food. Deal with it. Stephanos was one of those deacons, those shamashim who were appointed. Stephan, the one who was martyred while Paul looked on. Paul was also a Greek Jew, which explains in part the visceral delight, dislike that Judeans had for Paul. He was Greek Jew. And they were considered mashugi, crazy. Of course, Paul bringing believers to be tried and murdered was also a factor contributing to their dislike of him. It wasn't only that he was a, of Greek origin. We can gain a, a great deal of background to the New Covenant from these, from these tales that are told about the intertestamental period. Two primary factions of Jews emerge from the Hanukkah conflict described in the book of Maccabees. The first is the Sadducees. They were mainly priests who believed only the Torah, the five books of Moses, to be inspired by God. They didn't believe the prophets or the writings like Psalms or Proverbs were inspired. They didn't believe in the Torah Shabalpeh, the law of the mouth, the oral law. What, had, what was written down eventually and called the Talmud. They didn't believe in this oral traditions. They had no belief in resurrection. We see that continually through the New Covenant in Yeshua's discourses with them. 
The Sadducees made many concessions to Rome because they were primary political animals and in an attempt to avoid destruction, they would compromise and they would make compromises with Rome so that they could maintain their leadership. The Pharisees were a second group. Pharisee is an English word. Parushim is the Hebrew of what they were called. And it means parush is to be separate. It was a separatist party. They distanced themselves from the Sadducees and what they considered to be a defiled temple. And they set up synagogues all over Israel. The Perushim, the Pharisees, believe in the Tanakh, which is also an, uh, an acronym. An acronym. Uh, it means Torah, the law, Nevaim, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings. The Perushim believed in resurrection. They also were the ones who developed the oral Torah. Pharisees are the fathers of modern-day rabbis. The oral law became quite involved and was eventually determined to have been given to Moshe at Sinai along with the two tablets. Orthodox Jews believe the Torah Shabalpeh, the oral traditions, were given to Moshe while he was up on Sinai for 40 days. The traditions of the Torah, Shabal Peh, became more important than the written Torah among some of the Perushim. Here is a quote that would reveal that. He who studies Torah has limited righteousness. He who studies Mishnah, the word Mishnah comes from the word to repeat, It is a repetition of the law, giving greater detail. He who studies the Mishnah has greater righteousness. But he who studies Gemara, the word Gemara means completion. It was a commentary on the Mishnah, which added even more. He who studies the Gemara is of the greatest righteousness. Now, most of us would reverse that order. He who studies the commentary of a repetition of the Torah has the least righteousness. He who studies God's word is the most. But regardless, they further established a rabbinic succession back to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. It's up against this backdrop of darkness and corruption that Yeshua appears and gives context to one of his most bold proclamations. Anachi ha'or shel ha'olam. I am the light of the world. Found in John chapter 8, verse 12. Yeshua addresses many of these oral traditions developed by the Perushim in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. It's not much of a mount. It's more a mound. Trust me, I've been there. I stood on the mountain. It's not a mountain. I'm from Colorado. I know mountains. This is a mound on the, on the shores of the Galilee. It's, it's a 
mound. He addresses many of these oral tra traditions on the Sermon on the Mount, when he and he introduces his critique with the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's a little formula that he uses to bring clarity to the Jewish people at the time of the first century. There were many rabbis saying many different things, and it was very confusing. Unfortunately, the history of the church finds believers trapped in the same cycle of tahor, purity, tameh, defilement, shuva, a return to tahor, coming back to God and becoming pure again. What begins in purity is soon corrupted when man gets involved. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. After the last apostle dies, the Jewish leadership of the church is lost. When Constantine converts, he convenes the First Council of Nicaea in 325 CE with the purpose, primary purpose to define the parameters of the new faith this council addresses many of the heresies that, he, that rose up surrounding Yeshua and the things he did, and produces a few of their own, at least from my perspective. Everything Jewish is seen as heretical and is subsequently expunged from the now empire and the Roman Catholic or universal church. Over the last couple of months, I've addressed many of these issues. The Messianic movement, which was burst among the Jews of Israel, is now unrecognizable to those same Jews. I'll tell you the truth. One place I always wanted to visit, my wife and I went to Rome here a few number of years ago. The artist in me was utterly satiated. I could not believe the craftsmanship, the work that I saw. It it was exquisite, breathtaking. I've got no words, to, no words to describe it. The rabbi in me was utterly devastated. There was nothing recognizable to this Jew. Utterly devoid of any Jewish influence whatsoever. No wonder my it as a complete as a completely different religion. There is nothing of the Tanakh there. Even the statue of David was uncircumcised. Extraordinary. As the Pharisees, the traditions of the church became the key to understanding the scriptures. This led to the church being viewed as infallible. They also developed an apostolic succession from their present time all the way back to Yeshua. Essentially, the Jews, the Gentiles, they did the same thing with God's word, exactly the same. The traditions of men became more important than the commandments of God. No change. Early on, the church at Rome splits 
in a political upheaval between Rome and the church at Con Constantinople. The body of Messiah would again be fractured. The Protestant church began with Martin Luther. It did not end with him. Luther's followers eventually split into literally thousands of denominations. And this paring down of the body of Messiah has diminished the power that we had, that we were first given. We're just fractured. It's hard for believers to agree on whether or not it's daytime or nighttime out. Those who replace the commandments of God with the traditions or men are confined to no ethnicity. It is a human condition. It's something we do. God's people are either ascending the mountain into the, into the holiness of God or descending on the backside of Sinai into defilement. Now, I'm not a prophet. I've never claimed to be a prophet. I have no prophetic skills that I am aware of save that of my reason. I am just a lowly shepherd. My reason tells me that I have seen the fulfillment of prophecy in my days, in my life. In 1948, two days, uh, two years after I was, uh, before I was born, Israel became a nation. It f was the fulfillment of the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah that speak of a regathering of Israel that will no longer have a northern and a, su a southern kingdom, that the sticks of Israel and Judah would be joined together. The Israel that exists today is the only Israel that could fulfill that prophecy. All other Israels may, that existed between the time of that prophecy and the present had the northern and southern kingdoms. This present Israel doesn't. The genealogical records have been lost with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and it's been forgotten. The vast majority of Jews have no idea what tribe they come from, unless you're a Levi or a Kohen, which means you're from the tribe of Levi. Kohen is a priest. Another milestone of prophetic fulfillment was seen in the year 1967. I was a senior in high school. Yeah, I'm old. I was there before dinosaurs when there was only ferns. In 1967, we took control of Jerusalem and proclaimed it to be the capital of Israel. That was the first time that happened in 2,000 years. My joy at Jerusalem being recognized as the capital of Israel is mitigated by my knowledge of history and my knowledge of the prophetic timeline. The, Nash, the next hashtag on the prophetic timeline is the building of the third temple. Now those who don't believe in Yeshua will see the third temple as being Ezekiel's temple 
described by Ezekiel. It is not. It is the temple of the last, Hashechutz Mishomem, the last abomination that makes desolate. It is described in the book of Revelation as the place where the beast of Revelation, the abomination of that Daniel spoke of, stands in the Holy of Holies and proclaims himself to be God. This event will usher in the most profound defilement in the history of the world, greater than anything we've seen, which is a little scary because we have seen significant defilement of mankind over the ages. It will literally be a time of hell on earth when the dragon has been cast from heaven and walks amongst us as evil incarnate. The beast will be the incarnation of evil, Hasatan, found in Revelation chapter 12. There is a war in heaven, and the dragon is thrown out, and he drags with him a third of the stars or the angels in heaven. And the angels cry, uh, that are left in heaven cry, woe to the earth. For the accuser has been thrown down. The concept of Mashiach is God becoming man, Emmanuel, epiphany in the Greek. The spirit of the Antichrist is man's desire to become God. The latter is an abomination that leaves only desolation in its path. It will not end with epiphany, God being with us. It ends in epimony, a madness that overtakes a human. It drives him literally mad. Man is struck with two images, the image of God and the image of the beast. I have a body, just like every single beast of the field. That is in my physical image. And my body functions very similar to all life of all animals living out in the field. My body, as a human, houses the breath of God, which is God's image. Selim v'demut in the image and the likeness of God, that breath was poured into this vessel, this image of the beast. Those who worship the image of the beast are those who worship the creature rather than the creator. Paul gives us an extended definition of this in Romans chapter 1. And what happens, the madness, the epimenes that follow those who worship the creature rather than the, the creator. They're driven mad, and their descent into darkness increases exponentially. <clears throat> Those two images, the image of God and the image of the beast, war within a man. We're in a constant state of dynamic tension. There's always a fight going on within me. I'm not alone. There was always a fight going on within Paul. Read Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Wretched man am I. 
He's in a constant war with himself. The flesh battling the breath of God. Those two images fight continually. Psalm 2 describes the final battle of this war when those who worship the creation fight against the creator and his Mashiach and seek to break the ties that bind us to God. Read Psalm 2. There has always been a remnant of those who are true and faithful to God. Small in numbers, but, but possessed of, of lev tahorer, a pure heart. They will never capitulate. They will never surrender. And that's why the world seeks to murder them. Because the world is enmity with God. And the remnant will never give in to the world. And so the world's only recourse is to murder them. It has always been this way. And until the return of our Lord, it always will be this way. When we seek to make peace with the, with the world, the premise is wrong. So the conclusion can never be correct. The body of Mashiach cannot make peace with the world. They're enemies. The world wants things that are diametrically opposed to what we want or what God wants in his word. The remnant has inspired my primary philosophy on life. This one stands apart from all other philosophies that I have. You don't fight because you think you can win. You fight because something's worth fighting for. If you fight only when you think you can win, you become a bully. Then you really have no conviction. You fight because something is worth fighting for. That philosophy guided Matit Yahu and the Maccabees when they revolted in Israel. They did not believe that they could conquer Antiochus, who was ruling millions of square miles of territory. This little band of Jews wasn't sure that they could win. In fact, I'm pretty sure they thought they were all going to die. But this was worth fighting for. And so they fought anyway. It was the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow down and worship, them to bow down and worship him, they were thoroughly convinced they were going to die. But that resistance was worth it, rather than bow down. Do whatever you want, but we will not bow down and worship you. That, that won't happen. It's the philosophy of those in Revelation, in chapter 12, verse 11. And it is the only way that we are told how believers can overcome the beast. The beast will make war against the saints, and he will prevail in many, in ma on many occasions. 
That is also part of revelation. But there is one way believers overcome this. And they overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. They were willing to die rather than abandon their testimony in the blood of the lamb. Because that's the only thing the devil can do is take this nephesh, this life of the flesh that he can take but he can't he can't make me worship him unless I am so fearful unless I am willing to give up this life of the flesh for my God and if I am he has no power over me because he can only affect this History is once again calling muster on the warriors of God. Will you walk the path of Matit Yahu and refuse to bow or behave as the nameless Jew who would save his life by going along to get along? And if you don't think that choice is coming to us here, you're deluded. That choice is being made by believers all over this world today in many nations whose principalities are evil and wicked and so they desire to kill the believers the truth be known this choice is presented every single day in every single situation of our lives if we are not living for God in times of relative peace we delude ourselves to believe that we will die for him in times of war. That's a delusion. Here's an example. And it's an astonishing one for me. The speed and the ease of the world's compliance to take in a, a vaccine that was admittedly not going to stop anyone from getting this disease is simply extraordinary to me. I, I cannot get my mind around that. I am not against vaccines. I have been given some, my son, I, I allowed my son to be vaccinated. He has a polio vaccine, why? It works. When I was growing up, I saw lots of children who had polio, and it is a horrible disease and I didn't want my child to have it. And so we had a, a doctor come up with a vaccine and it worked. And they, needed, they didn't need any threats, any coercion. Parents lined up around the block to get a little sugar cube with this vaccine stuck on it. And they would give it to their children. Smallpox, same thing. It works. So I had no problem allowing my son to be vaccinated for smallpox. Side effects were small, minuscule actually, and no problem. This vaccine, quote unquote, it's not even a vaccine. It's a gene therapy. It alters your RNA. 
It has some significant side effects in a much larger percentage of the people who take it. And it doesn't stop you from getting the virus. Why would anybody take this? I, I'm astonished. There are threats of losing our jobs and not being able to buy or sell in stores. These were the basic threats that caused many to receive these ineffective shots. The insanity of telling me that I am killing people if I don't take the shot because I'm not vaccinated is completely non sequitur. It, it makes no sense. If the vaccine works, then you can't get the disease. If I don't take the vaccine, I'm the only one who's in danger. If you take the vaccine and it works, you're safe. How did this happen? And it happened all over the world. The vast majority of the Earth's population has taken this, this vaccine. It was easy. They proposed it, and everybody fell in line. This is exactly what's going to happen with the beast of Revelation. He's going to make a mark, and if you don't have it, you won't be able to buy and sell. And people will rationalize. They will compromise. They will capitulate. For the last two years, this preaching has been about strengthening what remains and what is about to die. Our faith is under continual erosion, a, a continual aggression. And we're losing as a body. We ease so easily abandon God and look to man to save us from a problem that man created. They hyped up this thing, and a, a pandemic. We have a pandemic every single year. Every single year. There is a flu pandemic that circles the world. And tens of millions die every single year. It's been going on for millennium. All of a sudden, this pandemic, why is this pandemic different from all other pandemics? I wish this was Pesach. This would have been a more profound question. Do not be deluded. The war is already here. And the truth be known, the war has never left. Many prophets have spoken of these times. Prophets and men of reason can certainly read the signs of the times. And I can't encourage you enough. Chazak, be strong. Walk in the ancient paths. Cast your gaze to the heavens. Because man is trying to get you to cast your gaze on him. Your salvation 
is in no man save that of Yeshua. May the spirit that inspired the Maccabees and all the followers of God throughout history empower us in our days, for we have choices to make. And those choices will have eternal consequences. Not a game anymore. It never has been, but in times like these, it is more profound. Let us rededicate this temple, as we are described in the New Covenant, to the service of God and God alone. But no one else has the words of life. And without Yeshua, no one shall see the Father. That is a message you are hearing less and less these days, as I spoke last week. Believe it. That's reality. Seek truth and reality in this age of delusion. Father, in Yeshua's name, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That your voice and the light of your presence will lead us and guide us in the ancient and good paths. That, Lord God, we would find our way to return to you. May our eyes be focused on you with blinders on, Lord, not turning to the left or the right. May we even be as Stephanos, for when even faced with death, his gaze was cast up into the heavens, and you allowed him to see the heavens roll back like a scroll, and he beheld the object of his faith, Yeshua, standing on the right hand of the throne of glory. Let us receive this vision, Lord God, in these days of darkness, that we would not become weak in the knees and drawn between two differenting, differenting, uh, difference, two differing opinions, that our stride would be strong and straight. In Yeshua's name, Amen.